From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 133 for the week of April 25th, 2013. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to the show everyone, I'm your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Nancy Johnson, Wayne Toygo, Mary Jo Mulatto-Willie, Michael Bowling, and Tony Spatel. In this segment, Wayne has one of his patented history segments and we're going to discuss water shows at Disneyland. Wayne? Thanks Tom. Disney has had a long fascination with water, and water elements and water effects have been incorporated into a surprisingly large part of the Disney parks. Think of how many water elements you see around the park. You see it in the landscaping. You see it as part of the attractions. There are rivers and streams and waterfalls and fountains all over the park. At night, The water may be softly lit to enhance its appearance, or in some places it appears just like in nature when all you perceive is just the sounds of the rushing water. And think of the number of attractions that actually use water as a major element. Pirates of the Caribbean, Small World, the Storybook Land Canal Boats, the Matterhorn, the Jungle Cruise, Splash Mountain, the Submarines, Donald's Boat and Toontown. Indiana Jones. The, the Mark Twain, Columbia, <laughs> and the canoes on the rivers of America. And all the waterfalls and rivers on Tom Sawyer's Island. It rains in the Tiki Room. There's an enchanted fountain. And in Peter Pan, you fly over the ocean and rivers. Even Dumbo has a water fountain under it. Yes, water is an important element at Disneyland, and this goes back to the beginnings of the park. But water effects are also incorporated into shows themselves. And there have been water shows around Disneyland almost since the park first opened. And now we have a couple of major shows, Fantasmic and The World of Color, in which water is not only included, water is the show. Now, in putting this story together, I didn't want to do just the standard history segment on how Fantasmic and the World of Color were built. We'll get into some of that a little later. But I wanted to take you on a journey of how water shows came to Disneyland. And more particular, I wanted to tell you the tales of my involvement in water shows and how, in a small way, I was part of the long chain that eventually brought the world of color to Disney. So for this story, I'm not going to be speaking from a lot of prepared text. I really want to tell you about this from my own personal experience and from the stories and events that were told to me. So excuse me as I stumble over my words and repeat phrases from time to time. And I'll apologize in advance for any facts that I get wrong. I mean, I'm dealing with 50 years of my own history here, so sorry. Wow. Sorry. Half but, a century. <laughs> I know. That, isn't that frightening? It anyway, is. Anyway, I want this just to be me telling you the story, just like we were having dinner at Napa Rose or Club 33. 
So grab your Mickey bar, your Dole Whip, or your Lost Safari from Trader Sands, sit back, close your eyes, and let's rewind the clock once again. Only this time, we need to go back even further than Disneyland, even further than Walt himself. Water fountain shows go back, believe it or not, to the early 1800s. There was a little inventor in Europe who made a water-powered clock that played musical chimes. I think it was in the little city of Transylvania. By the 1900s, there were mechanical and electrical water shows that had an operator that moved levers or by some other means to make the fountain formations change. And some of them were even accompanied by music. In the 1920s, a gentleman in Germany named Otto Pristawik created Pristawik's Dancing Fountains. This was small scale, and it was a display for places like restaurants and stores, And Otto became rather famous in his time for what he was able to do. If you look at some of the very old pictures from this time, you'd be pretty impressed by what this early technology looked like. And I'll tell you, I would have liked to have been there. You know, I wonder if he also has something to do with um, some of the palaces, because I was in uh, Salzburg, Austria, and they had a water show where the water had the fountains would go and also figurines would dance and it was all water controlled through this time period and yeah. right up through the 50s water shows and water effects and water features became a prominent part of architecture and were included frequently during the 50s otto and his son gunter worked together in their german factory They were building fountains, they were installing them in various locations, and they built up the business of the Postowicz Dancing Fountains. Then, in 1952, the Postowicz Fountains were seen by a young New York show producer named Harold Steinman. Harold loved the show, and he brought it to be performed at the Radio City Music Hall in New York. After that, Steinman purchased dozens of the fountain systems over the next several decades. He started a company in New York, and he named the company The Dancing Waters. And that's where that trade name comes from. The shows went on tour throughout the United States and really throughout the rest of the world. The dancing waters were characterized by the fact that all the fountain systems were operator controlled. There was a person at a console who was manipulating some kind of controls to make the fountains perform. The fountains were portable. They were self-contained. They included the fountain formations, the pumps, the lights, and in later years, some even included sound systems. The fountains of the dancing waters were primarily characterized by moving fountain formations. This was unique. 
There were many other architectural type fountains, and even in much later years, many kinds of fountains would have various jets and bubblers and special effects, but the fountain jets were fixed. They would form patterns, and the patterns would change, but once the water came out of the fountain jets, it just flowed wherever it went. The unique thing about the dancing waters is that several of the fountain formations actually moved. One of the trademark formations is called a waltz, and you've probably seen this if you've seen any Dancing Waters type show. This is where a number of the jets are attached to a bar and then the bar moves so that it moves the water. Sway your hands back and forth and that's what the water would do. There were also spinners which would twirl the water around in a circle and other formations like a butterfly or a rainbow and all of these formations were made to be unique to dancing waters and is what gave the fountains their dancing aspect. Fascinating to the entertainment industry of its time. Dancing waters fountains were installed at many venues and even as, as the years progressed, even at theme parks, places like Six Flags Over Texas, and they performed all over the country at county fairs, at state fairs, at various locations all over the place. All right, now let's progress a little further. And how many times recently have I told you about how significant the 1964 New York World's Fair was? I've heard of that. And believe it or not, I'm going to bring it up again this time. It's almost like this was a key event in our Disney journeys because the Dancing Waters was displayed throughout the run of the New York World's Fair. It was located in the Lake Amusement Area, and it was inside one of those big inflatable dome buildings, kind of like if you went a little farther, you'd, you'd have those old-fashioned laser shows. But this one contained a Dancing Waters show. That was in 64. We're progressing. Now, the original designer, Otto, and his son, Gunther, in 1965 moved their company to Florida. In fact, it was Gunter who moved the, the company to the city of Cape Coral, which is on the west coast of Florida. It's a little south of Tampa and, and the Orlando area. He, um, his father had died, and so Gunter moved to the United States. And at that point, the company kind of separated. The Dancing Waters Company still was operating in New York. And now Gunter and his company moved to Florida. And they kind of wanted to address a different market. So Gunter named his new company the Waltzing Waters to distinguish them from the old, older dancing fountains that were designed by his father. <laughs> 
Waltzing Waters concentrated on building large fountain systems that had permanent locations, whereas Dancing Waters was really all about touring shows, about the portable fountain that could be moved anywhere and set up, you know, with minimal effort and do a show and then move on. Waltzing Waters wanted to get more involved with permanent locations, where you would have a show that ran all the time. In fact, there's a permanent show even today. They, they built an early show uh, up in a location in Fort Myers, Florida, which is in this same area. And then in later years, Gunter's son, Michael, became involved with the business, and today, Michael Postowick now heads the Waltzing Waters Company. Moving again forward, now we're in 1966, and the Disneyland Hotel becomes very interested in a water fountain show. They've expanded the hotel at this point from the original tower, and they've created like this courtyard area in the center, and they're looking for ways to do something with it, some kind of something or other. And the hotel people brought in the Dancing Waters to be an attraction. They built an area off to the corner of the property, and this became some nightly entertainment. It was characterized by being free, free to anybody who came in. This was kind of unique back then. No admission charge. It ran nightly, which was also kind of nice. And it was an advertised feature for the hotel. It almost became like a promotional feature. So folks would come in at night into the hotel just to see the Dancing Water Show and then stay and go to the restaurants and the lounges and do shopping. The Disneyland Hotel was quite the entertainment venue for a number of years in those early years. Additionally, while the show started with an operator at a control console. Disney rapidly saw that there was an opportunity to automate this show. And it didn't take much for them to come up with an extremely rudimentary but quite effective form of early automation for the Dancing Water show. The operator still stood at the console, but really, all the buttons on the console became manual control buttons for when they were cleaning the fountains or needed to do some other kind of maintenance. There were relays and tape recorders back behind the console in a small, a small uh, enclosed building that were actually running the fountain formations themselves. So this, along with some of the other automation that Disney was getting into at this time, was part of how the show evolved. Then in May of 1970, the Dancing Waters debuted at the Disneyland Hotel in a brand new facility. They built a, like a crescent-shaped amphitheater in the hotel. And this is when we had the major refurbishment in the landscaping. 
now the Dancing Waters is a real attraction. You've got a viewing area, really nice, really comfortable. You've got it stair-stepped or terraced so that everybody can see the show. There's lots of shopping and a marina and shops and restaurants and all kinds of things to support the inside of the Disneyland Hotel. There would be additional changes to this area and the surrounding inner courtyard at the Disneyland Hotel, but now we have a real entertainment area, and a water show is a key part of it. Okay, fast forward several years, and the Dancing Waters show evolves a little bit, And Harold Steinman dies, but the company is taken over by his wife, Carol Steinman. So the Dancing Waters stays afloat. At this point, they have many units that were touring. We're talking about the late 70s here. And in 1977, the Dancing Waters was performing, as it did every year, at the Texas State Fair. The Texas State Fair is a pretty large venue. And outside of one of the buildings, they have a very large esplanade with a very big water pond. And they put the Dancing Waters Fountain right in the middle. And I remember going to the State Fair for many years. And this particular year, I noticed the Dancing Waters and just became fascinated. Fascinated to a degree that I never would have thought. I mean, at this point, I'm already out of school and I've got a permanent job and supposed to be looking forward to a nice, stable career. I started talking to the fountain operator and found out that Carol Steinman was going to be visiting the very next day. Well, I couldn't turn that down. So I came back out to the state fair that next day and I met Carol Steinman. We talked a little bit about the show and how the Dancing Waters worked and what it was to be a part of their organization, and I was captivated. I was absolutely captivated. And in 1978, I packed up Kit and Caboodle, and I moved myself to New York to be a water fountain show unit operator for the Dancing Waters. I took one of the units, one of the traveling portable units, it was called Unit Number 20, and I toured literally all over the country. Believe it or not, one of my first stops was in California. We did a uh, small county fair that's sort of near the San Diego area. I did uh, activities in Las Vegas, in Tennessee, Wisconsin, Baltimore, Philadelphia. I did the Texas State Fair that next year and even shows in Canada. One of the most interesting things I got to be a part of was a permanent part of a show in Las Vegas that used the Dancing Waters as part of the show. Many of you may have heard that for years and years at the Las Vegas Hilton, the performer Liberace was a headliner. And in one of the numbers that Liberace did, it featured a Dancing Water show on stage. The fountain was set up back behind the curtain. Liberace's and his piano was on a revolving platform, and at a key part in the show, The curtains would raise and the fountain was revealed. 
Well, there was a permanent operator assigned to that show, but every once in a while, one of us would get to do the show, and I was very privileged that one year, or that one one time I was out there, I was able to put on the tuxedo and play the fountain. And at the end of the show, as Liberace is introducing the marvelous dancing waters, and he said, and I want to tell you about the marvelous young man who's helping to operate my dancing waters. The curtain comes back, the spotlight comes on, and who else would not be in heaven by that kind of introduction? (laughs) They also had a small, fully automated fountain that was installed in the Las Vegas Hilton in the Benihana Village restaurant. And this would become significant because this was yet another step in automating this kind of fountain show. It's not really hard to do, but you have to remember, this was years before the IBM PC and the Apple Macintosh. There was absolutely no such thing as a personal computer. And so to do automation of any kind, well, it, it was it was pretty involved, and it was real science-like. It was skunk works. It was homebrew. It was go to, go to the... Go to the electronics store and grab some parts and see what you could put together. After my stint with Dancing Waters, I made a small venture into another theme park. Up here, it's the Great America theme park, where I participated as a sound mixer and did some production studio work. But through that association, I was involved with a group of show people who were at Great America, and we all became friends, and one of them was the entertainment director out at Great America for the show's department. We became very good friends. I was only there for about three years. But I decided that show business is no place to make a living, and so I kind of got back into a regular career flow until 1984, when all of a sudden... The Los Angeles Olympics were coming to town. And this was a very big deal because the Olympics here to date had been mm, pretty average. There wasn't really anything very special about the ceremonies in, in particular. It was, it was just kind of an added thing that you kind of had to do. But in 1984, the producers of the Olympics decided they were going to do something quite a bit different. And rather than the traditional kind of ceremonies, they pulled out all the stops and made it into a production. They were... They, they brought in all of these performers and all kinds of show production elements in order to really turn the Olympics into almost a show production larger than anything that any, uh, anyone had ever seen. They did this for the opening ceremonies. Big, big success. And again, planned for another large celebration show for the closing ceremonies. Well, at this time, they were looking for what they wanted to do, and they decided that this would be kind of like a celebration concert. So they set up a stage in the center of the Los Angeles Stadium, and they decided that they wanted a production show fountain, a water fountain show, to enhance the performer that was singing and performing and dancing on stage. Are we talking about the closing 
This was the closing ceremony. I remember, I remember, because, you know, even though I was like sixth grade, sorry, sorry. Do you remember who the performer oh, was? don't even question. It was Lionel Richie, man. Excellent. And, Very and Ash- good. Yeah, Ashford and Simpson performed too, but that's just me showing, showing off. But Lionel so, Richie, yes. So Lionel's hit song that year was All Night Long. And so the concept was, as soon as the Olympic torch went out, Lionel would come up on stage, he would start singing in his little dreamy voice, and then as the music crescendoed, all of these dancer performers would come join him on stage, and at the height of the celebration, the Dancing Waters Fountains would start going off and enhance the show all around the stage. And there wasn't just one fountain, there were three of them. Well, I got contracted to come do that show because all the other Dancing Waters performers were touring the country with their little units. So there was no one else who knew the fountain systems and could come to Los Angeles to do the show. So for about two months... I had an unbelievable experience working with the LA Olympics with Dancing Waters again and being a part of that environment. That was in 84. Now we're going to go a little farther south. And in 1988, Knott's Berry Farm decided that they were tired of being a small little unnoticed theme park. And Knott's really wanted to improve their show department. And so they hired a new show production manager, some new talent, and a whole bunch of good creative people. And they started overhauling Knott's. Now, Knott's was already working on some new rides and stuff. But that was the first time that Knott's really concentrated on shows. And in, 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 in late 1989, or rather in early 1989, Knott's decided, you know what? We need a nighttime water spectacular. They already had this little, little pond, little lake. They called it Reflection Lake. And it was just sitting there kind of at the front part of the park, not really doing very much. I don't know who's responsible for the idea, but somebody one day walked in the park, looked at that lake and went, we need a water show here. And so they started looking around. And Dancing Waters was certainly available, but not really the right fit for what Knott's wanted to do. This was going to be a permanent installation. This was going to be a big-time show production. And so Knott's turned to Waltzing Waters. And they contacted the folks in Florida who did a big design and came out and built a completely custom fountain for Knott's Berry Farm. And in 1989, Knott's Incredible Waterworks opened. But there was a little problem. See, the Florida folks, and for the Florida show, they have pre-programmed a bunch of their own shows. And this is what they sell to a customer in a new location. So you buy the fountain, you buy all the parts, you buy the automated system because Waltzing Waters doesn't need a fountain operator. They've already got this computer thing all figured out. And they'll also sell you a package of pre-programmed shows with music. Well, this sounds great. And Knott's got them in and they 
put all the shows up and they test ran them in front of the audience. And the audiences in California were kind of bored. <laughs> These shows were very, very good for the retired folks on the west coast of Florida, but not so good for the hip Hollywood folks out in California. Oh, and did I forgot to mention who they hired to be the show manager at Knott's? This is named Ryan with, Ryan with Wayne? Well, not the show manager, <laughs> but... The friend of mine who hired me at Great America when I was up there, he was the stage manager up there, and so he's now the director at Knott's Berry Farm, and so when, when management, when show management said, we gotta do something better than this, is there anyone here that could produce fountain shows that would be a little better for our audience. And my friend stood up and he said, let me out a telephone. And I got the call and he said, I need you to come down here. I need you to learn how to program this fountain and create us a new nighttime spectacular. So I went down to Knott's and this was my first exposure in 1989. And we created a nighttime show that ran that entire year. Very successful, lots of big crowds, along with some other things that were happening on now, happening at Knott's. This really started putting Knott's back on the map, and it was a very good thing for them, and I was delighted to be a part of it. The summer show in 89 was so successful that that year for Knott's Halloween Haunt, they brought me back to do yet another show. Now, Haunt had been going on for a couple of decades by then. The year before, um, they had done, they had tried to do a nighttime show as part of Haunt that included lasers and fireworks and specialized music, and it was a pretty good show, but now, they had a water fountain too. So for this year, they decided now we're going to create a new nighttime spectacular water show. And they called it Laser Music Madness. And it would include the fountains, lasers, fireworks. The lasers would be projected onto the water formations. There was a formation on the Incredible Waterworks fountain that was called a curtain. Picture a bunch of small jets that ran across the very front end of the fountain and pointed straight up in the air. When pulsed, it would produce an interesting, like, like a, uh, um, uh, a pulsing pattern that you could change by varying how fast you pulse the pumps. But if you just locked it on, what you'd get is a wall of water. And this was at the very front of the, fount- of the fountain formations. And if you turn the water lights off, you'd have a screen that you could project things onto. And so for this year... The, the laser company programmed special images and appropriate animated patterns, all with the technology of the day, and used that with the water show 
to build up this nighttime spectacular for Halloween. They used fog to enhance the laser effects, and fog also added uh, a little bit of atmosphere. And again, this was this was really successful and got lots of good crowd reaction. From '89 through the next several years, this repeated, and knots created new daytime water shows, a new nighttime water spectacular every year and a specialized show for Halloween Haunt. Then in 1992, Knotts decided that they wanted to take this whole show yet another step. Prior to this, Knotts owned the water fountain, to be sure, but they rented in all the other show elements as they needed them, and one of those show elements was a laser system. Now, there were lots of laser companies around, and in particular, the ones that regularly do the laser shows that you all may have seen at your local planetarium. In fact, up at Griffith Park, um, are they still doing the laser show, the, the laser media, laser spectacular show? Last, last time I heard, I think it was still playing up at Griffith, up, the, up at the observatory. So there are tons of these little laser companies. But there was another smaller company that had a rather unique, uh, 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 unique laser system. The company's name was Precision Projection Systems. And the unique thing about them was, rather than just have a scanning system that would produce spirograph type of patterns or bounce patterns off mirrors, they actually had a system which computer controlled would draw real patterns. So you could scan into the computer an image. It had to be fairly simple. But it was still an image, and the laser would then trace that image and produce it kind of like a line drawing for a cartoon. Well, this was perfect for knots. And if you took several frames of those images, you could create basic animation. So at that point in 92, I started programming the water fountain and everything having to do with the water fountain and the laser systems. The lasers had single beams, which were bounced off mirrors, and they also had these scanned patterns, which were projected onto the water screen. Any of this sound familiar, <laughs> like what we're going to see somewhere else in a number of years? Additionally, there was another pattern which I really wanted for a particular piece of the show. Now, like I said, this was... This was kind of a unique system for a laser. It could do some things very well. It couldn't do other things very well. And one of the traditional laser patterns that you may have seen in some of the shows is a simple wave, like a sine wave or a circular wave, but just a gentle wave, very large in in size, that moves across the area. Well, with an analog laser system or some of the others, this is really easy. But with a digital system and a scanning system, not quite so easy. But I really wanted one. 
it went perfectly with the part of the music that I wanted to use it in. So I started playing with a number of techniques and effects. And believe it or not, I actually found a way to animate a wave pattern. When played over the fountain, you never knew that it was simply a series of images. Much like the way a movie works, this was literally drawing the the shapes of the waves and projecting them onto the fountain formations. The other thing I managed to do was to use the lasers to trace the fountain formations themselves with the laser. Rather than lining the fountain formations from below with traditional like incandescent lights, what this did is it painted the outside of the water and made it look like the laser was part of the water formation itself. This will also become significant later on. The fountains are not single line. They're kind of arranged in like a grid, and they have some depth to them. So when you project a laser through the fountain, water is going to go everywhere, and water droplets are going to go everywhere. And when the water, when the laser hits these water droplets, it makes the laser patterns almost three-dimensional. So you can draw a, a shape as simple as a circle or a box. And even though the laser pattern looks like a circle or a box or a triangle or a trapezoid or whatever, by the time it goes through the water, it looks like a cone or a cube or a big cylinder or even a flat surface that spans the entire width of the lake. Well, I found one other little effect where just by drawing a simple line with the laser but projecting it into the air, the water formations would, when they shot off, look like they were breaking through an artificial ceiling. You almost have to see this to understand what it was. But picture... Picture droplets of rain falling onto a completely still lake. You get those little bubble patterns. You get those little oscillating patterns that happen as the droplets hit the lake. Now take that effect and turn it upside down. And with the laser, draw a line in the air and shoot the water up. And now it looks like the water is falling upwards because the water droplets are hitting the laser patterns in the air. I called it an inverted lake effect. And again, this is going to have some influence down the road. How many uh, many fountains, individual fountains were you working with, Wayne? They were grouped in a series, and there were something like 25 or 30 grouped patterns, but each one of those formations were comprised of many different fountain formations and certainly multiple, multiple jets to make those formations. So, for example... The curtain effect, that's just one effect, but it took about three pumps to make that work and literally hundreds of jets. Okay. 
you take like a basic cake formation and now you have maybe six individual wedding cake type formations that span the width of the fountain, but you can control the height and the layers of each of those formations. And you make those all dance in time to the music and find different patterns that you can do, and that's how you build a fountain show. Well, this whole time, Knott's is certainly not operating in a vacuum. In fact, none of the theme parks ever operate in a vacuum. With show business, everybody watches everybody, and Disney certainly watched Knott's. Disney regularly visited Knott's Berry Farm. They would look at ideas, and they would then take them back to the parks or to Imagineering, and they would expand on the ideas that were found there. And it wasn't just Disney. Universal would do this. Disney would visit Magic Mountain. Everybody kind of borrowed, if you will, from everybody. In fact, there was even a, if I remember correctly, there was even a radio code. We all had these like two-way radios that, you know, when, when you were working as a technician, you carried a radio. And I remember I was Tech 74, and there's even a story to that, which I'll say for some other time. And one day, um, the radio code that meant Disney is on property came across the general channel. And I'm up in my booth ready to start one of the shows, and the telephone rings, and it's the show operations office. And they wanted to inform me that Disney was coming to see my 8 p.m. show. Well, (laughs) the pressure's on to make sure that everything goes correctly, but also that's a pretty high privilege when you find out that Disney was on property specifically to see a bunch of stuff, and you happen to be one of those things. All right, so that's 92 when all of that activity was going on, but there was certainly not uh, not a lack of activity going on over on the Disney property. And in 1992, the Disneyland Hotel was seeing yet another upgrade refurbishment improvement to some of its entertainment facilities within the courtyard area itself. This was a pretty big improvement. Um, in 92, they were, they were just making all kinds of changes again. And one of those changes was Disney, the Disney hotel people weren't very happy at that point with the Dancing Water show. It had fallen into some degree of disrepair. The automation system, I mean, it was, it was difficult to maintain because at this point it was several decades old and some of those relays were, um, getting, getting difficult to service and the option was, well, we could upgrade it and then we'd have the same show with just different automation parts or we can drop the whole show altogether and the landscaping people looked at that facility and went wow that pool sure would make a very good planter box and I can't tell you how much discussion went on at the Disneyland Hotel to turn that whole corner into one gigantic flower garden that went on pretty seriously for most of that year and while the Waltzing Waters people were out at Knott's Berry Farm helping me out with my stuff that year. 
they got wind of how dissatisfied the Disneyland Hotel people were with the Dancing Water show that was currently going on. So they had a meeting. And that led to several more meetings. And that led to some proposals. And the Waltzing Waters folks convinced the Disneyland Hotel folks to essentially replace the, the Dancing Waters Water Fountain show with a waltzing, with a brand new Waltzing Waters water show. And this is when you may remember at one point that show was converted and renamed Fantasy Waters instead of specifically Dancing Waters because it no longer was Dancing Waters. At this time, they built a whole new backdrop for the show. They built a new fiber optic background, which was capable of some basic animations, but really just a whole lot of very big color patterns that they could flash on the wall. There were some animated LED characters, some Disney characters that were put in. The whole soundtrack was turned away from... Um, classical and popular music into all Disney music. Now it really was a Disney show, and it really revitalized the Water Fountain show at the Disneyland Hotel. It it saved it. It absolutely saved that show, and once again became a popular attraction. Again, that revitalized people coming to the hotel at the, in the evening for entertainment. But there was another significant event that kind of happened in 1992 also. At that time, Disney had decided that, you know, fireworks are nice and fireworks are great and we've been doing fireworks forever and it's one of the most popular things at Disneyland. But Disney After Dark deserves much more than just a fireworks show. And several years before, they embarked on a campaign to come up with a new nighttime spectacular. And we all know now that that show eventually became Fantasmic. Disneyland's entertainment department was tasked with creating this show. Now, many of you may not be aware, but there's a very big difference between the show operations department at Disneyland and Walt Disney Imagineering. Two completely separate companies. They work together to be sure. They rely on each other to be sure. But they are still very separate, and Disneyland Entertainment does an awful lot of stuff on their own. They get all the bands for the Tomorrowland Terrace. They contract all the individual street performers. They do a lot of their own work. Disneyland's entertainment department is, for theme parks, huge. And they do a lot of really, really good work. So the Disneyland Entertainment Group, they are the ones that came up with the initial idea and show concepts for Fantasmic. They lined it all out. They had come up with the venue. They came up with a lot of the show concepts. And they packaged all this up into a great big proposal, which is what you do, and they presented it to Walt Disney Imagineering. 
And typically what happens is then Imagineering takes that and they look it over and they, you know, massage it a little bit and refurb it and they say, okay, well, this looks great. We want to do this and we can do this and negotiate back and forth and here's how much it'll cost and how long it'll take. And for most of us who know that cycle and we've been talking about some of the other attractions that have been developed over the years, we know that it takes Imagineering about seven years to come up with a completely new attraction from design to opening day. So Imagineering came back to Disneyland Entertainment and said, this is a great concept. We're going to have audio-animatronic characters. We're going to have robotic boats, and we're going to have automated pyro. And this is this is going to be the best show ever. And it's going to cost $400 gazillion, <laughs> and we'll have it ready for you in seven years. And I heard, I heard jaw dropping that day from up here in Northern California. And that was the poor executives at show operations in Disneyland going, that's not really what we had in mind. We needed something this summer. Like, like six, nine months from now. And (laughs) Imagineering just said, uh, no way. <laughs> we we can't do that. It's impossible. And they kicked it back. They actually kicked it back. They refused the project. They said, sorry, can't be done. Well, Disneyland Entertainment was not going to take no for an answer. And so they took the project on themselves. And they did what they did but do best. And that's, they don't design audio animatronics, and they don't design fancy automation systems. Instead, what they do is they hire really talented actors. And they have a great costume department. And they have some amazing in-park technicians who are more than capable of coming up with some really creative and inventive ideas. And so little by little, Disney Entertainment created from scratch Fantasmic. They used commercial systems. They used readily available products and, and uh, uh, facilities. And each step of the way, with sometimes a lot of painstaking effort, they created Fantasmic from nothing. For things like the show called for Maleficent to rise out of the stage. Well, there's a little commercial gadget called a scissor lift. And you've probably seen them on the construction sites. This is a little platform on a, on a movable cart that can be driven by an operator. And it's what you use when you gotta lift a person or some equipment up sometimes several stories in the air in order to work on something or other. Well, they got one of these and put a costume around it, and they called it Maleficent. But the undersides was just a commercially available scissor lift. And there's another gadget called a cherry picker, which or, or a boom lift. And they took one of those, and they draped a costume around it, and they kind of had to improve the hydraulics on it, and they took some of the safety catches off it, (laughs) and they turned it into, excuse me, and they turned it into a dragon. And this is the kinds of things that Disneyland was able to do. 
They took personnel to even cover the tech jobs. They put spotlight operators on towers. They had technicians to drive the boats rather than them being automated or track following. And they used the, the techniques that they had available. So they knew that they wanted to do projections on water screens. So they created them with their AV department their audio-visual department. They created all of that on in-house. Oh, and now we're going to see some of the similarities between what Fantasmic originally started out to be and some of those other techniques which had been used in other shows, sometimes for decades, starting with projections on water screens. Well, to be sure... Disney came up with the ultimate water screen. They found a way through just experimenting and a little bit of a budget to really find a good way to do not only just, well, they weren't going to do lasers on water screens. They wanted to do full-blown animation, and they found a way. They found a very simple gadget and took it out to the pond one day, and who would have known that if you took a garden hose and just blasted it onto a steel plate that water, although it went everywhere, the part that went up in the air (laughs) actually made a thin little screen. And guess what? You can project on it. The show was also going to have full pyrotechnics, and with Disney, pyrotechnics Pyrotechnics is no problem at all. We got the technology. We've had it for years. We got the permits. We got the land. Poor little Knott's Berry Farm. Goodness, they're within two blocks of home residences. It's not like they can shoot fireworks 500 feet in the air. They can do a little bit, but now Disney has full permits. Oh, and Disney also wanted to con- wanted to include lasers as part of the Fantasmic show. And there's lots of laser companies that can be contracted, like I had said, and they decided, well, we've seen some really great things come from precision projection systems. So guess who Disneyland contracted to do the lasers for the very first Fantasmic show? And remember I told you about the wave effect that I created for the Haunt show? Well, there's not too much videotape of it anymore, but in the original show and running for mm, quite some time, I would say, let's see, the show opened in 92, so I would say for about seven or eight years. At the very tail end of the show, when Mickey, when Sorcerer Mickey is up on the platform above the little shack there, and he's doing his little little dance, his little number up there. Beside him, you will see two laser effects. And the two scaled-down laser effects done with the precision, precision projection systems laser were two of the wave patterns that I had originally done for the, the haunt show at Knott's Berry Farm. It's not credited. It's certainly not copyrighted. It's one of those things that show people borrow from show people (laughs) all the time. But I have the videotape. I can show you 
that first effect that was done in Phantasmic was the same effect that I originally created at Knott's. Well, as we know, Phantasmic was wildly successful. In 2007, they started doing some refurbs at Phantasmic. They started changing out and improving the sound. The next year, they did the lighting. They did refurbs and improvements to the characters and the projection systems. Then in 2010, they did a full refurbishment of the show. And the show itself was down, many of you remember, the show was down for months. This is when the dragon, when when Murphy, as we call him, that's when he got installed. Her? She was a her. Oh, yeah, it's Maleficent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maleficent is actually the side dragon. Murphy is, well, yeah, it, it, it is the same, but there's, there's two, the two effects there. One is the queen who rises up and then the full Maleficent dragon that appears on the stage. And in 2010, many of the other special effects were changed out, including the laser patterns and as I looked for a very brief second, and I know where to look, and it, it's, it doesn't last for very long. There's some remnants of some of those original laser effects from the first show, but it doesn't last very long at all anymore, and it's not very prominent. But if you want to watch the show with me, I'll point it out, <laughs> and then we'll go back, and I'll show you my 8-millimeter tape of my show, and I'll show you where it came from. Obviously, Fantasmic is much, much more than just a water show, but it is such a significant show that it would be difficult to say that water and water effects aren't part of that show. All right, so let's let's now we we were we were almost to 2010, but let's rewind a little bit because in 1998 some other. Fountain technology became uh, available, and that was from a company based in Los Angeles called Wet Enterprises. And they came up with a new way to do water fountains. They came up with what they've called a shooter fountain. And that fountain uses a chamber which fills with water and then is expelled out of the fountain nozzle with compressed air. And you've all probably seen examples of this kind of water fountain because the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas in 1998 introduced the Fountains of Bellagio, which had a number of these specialized kind of fountains. Characteristically, what these fountain are able to do is to shoot an enormous amount of water very high in the air. And there's also a characteristic pop that you hear as soon as the compressed air, which is pushing the water out the nozzle, finally gets exposed to the air. It almost sounds like a little bang, and sometimes it even kind of enhances the show because it comes musically at the right time. This was pretty different, and for those of you who have not seen the Fountains of Bellagio, please make a trip out to Las Vegas, if nothing else, but to see this. (laughs) <laughs> when shall we go? They are just gorgeous, and they're starting to be used by other shows for this technology. 
Rewind again from 1998. In 1997, Knott's Berry Farm had a significant event. At that time, Knott's was sold from the Knott's, Bear, from the Knott's family to Cedar Fair. And unfortunately, several years later, in 2004, Knott's removed the water show, the incredible waterworks show, to put in a roller coaster. So that left, that left Knott's without a show. It left Disneyland with really the only water show anywhere around. Um, kind of unique at this point in time. And now we step forward and we start seeing some rumors, some discussion, and some plans for the refurbishment of the Disney California Adventure Park. Well, they had experimented with a number of shows in their little lake area for a number of years, and nothing was working. And that's when they decided that it's going to take much more than just a little show to really, really do what we want to do in this part of California Adventure. In 2007, they announced a big park expansion. And this was going to include what we now know as the fantastic new show, The World of Color. This is a full water show with moving fountains and fountains that shoot up to 200 feet in the air and projections on water screens and lasers projected on water and on structures and laser images and pyro and fire effects. And it was going to take 15 months to build and cost $75 million. This you, you, you probably a- could have done it for like $72 million. <laughs> <laughs> this was a big project, and Imagineering was now fully on board <laughs> with this thing. In 2008, the lake was drained, and installation began in early 2009, testing, and then the show finally opened in June of 2010. We have, we have talked so much about World of Color and there is so much out there about World of Color. It, it, it almost belittles me to try and summarize what it is because I know all of you know about this show. This is the premier water show of all water shows. But there can be no doubt that it borrowed technology and ideas from every other water show before it. The shooter fountains that the World of Color uses, they come directly from the Bellagio show that Wet Enterprises did. Disney recreated them, and everything that you see in the World of Color was designed and built by Disney, but the idea and the technology came from somewhere else. The dancing formations that you see all across the World of Color show Obviously, that comes from the dancing water shows and the waltzing water shows who pioneered that technology and showed what it looks like when you take movable water fountains and incorporate that into a musical water show. Pyro and fireworks effects from almost every nighttime spectacular were about to be used, and 
Although, although the movable fire jets, they are somewhat unique in this show. And, I can't say that scary. I've seen. <laughs> and, and warm, and very warm. We like them on cooler nights. Fog is going to be used in, in World of Color, and fog has been used in almost every nighttime uh, show. Laser images, to be sure. Oh, and one other effect that I haven't seen in almost 20 years. Near the beginning of the World of Color show, some of the moving fountains appear to wave through an artificial ceiling made up of a laser light, making it look like the fountains are breaking through a laser barrier. Sound familiar at all? (laughs) This is the inverted lake effect from my haunt show at Knott's. And again, I have the video, so any doubting Thomases are out there, I'll show you this is exactly the same effect. We all love the world of color. There's no question about that. There's no question that this is the most spectacular Disney show ever. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention that some of the biggest problems with the world of color is the viewing area. The, there is standing room only. There is no seating whatsoever. There, the terraced viewing areas don't rise enough between the levels, and there aren't that many levels either. And the viewing area doesn't even face the center of the show. It's canted off to the side. So as you're standing in the viewing area, you think you're pointed towards show center, but in fact you have to turn almost 30 degrees in one direction to see where the center show is going to be. Many of the effects in the world of color have been been designed by um, have been designed to show on the lake's surface which most of the audience can't see at all the reason this was done is because early on when they were programming the show they brought in a little programming trailer if you were on Mickey's Fun Wheel for months you could see this white trailer that was up on the second level of the terraced uh, viewing area and that was the programming booth that's where all the designers would come at night and program on, program and test all the little fountain formations. Well, not only was that programming booth elevated where they were sitting, you know, in, in the area, but they had no crowds in front of them at all. So it was very easy for them to design a show from their point of view that went right down to lake level. But as soon as you have crowds of people on those terraces, suddenly you're not seeing the lake at all. And in fact, in a lot of cases, you're only seeing half of what's the highest uh, effects in the air. Unfortunately, this viewing area is terrible for kids. And uh, for for everything else to be said, the people I feel the most sorry for are the poor children who absolutely cannot see this show from most of the areas around this viewing area. It's almost like a symphony when the show, when the lights go down and the show starts and you can look around. Don't, don't watch the show next time. Just take a <laughs> casual look around and watch all the kids jumping on, on the parents' shoulders. And I don't blame them. This is one, one case where I, I don't blame them at all for trying to get up there because if you're a kid and you're down in that sea of people, there's no way you're seeing anything. 
and 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 all of this is further impacted by this sea of lighted screens from mobile and recording devices that immediately go up in the air as soon as the show starts. And that, again, cuts out some of the viewing area. World of Color desperately needs a grandstand, and they certainly could do that. There's lots of ways to do collapsible and movable grandstands. Yes, it was cost a fortune, but hello, Disney. Anyway, the chances of that happening... Probably zero, because as we've all seen, World of Color sells out almost every show. It's it's capacity, standing room only for every performance. And until the crowds diminish, there's really little hope for any kind of improvement in this area, unfortunately. But I bring it up hoping that maybe somebody will listen and take pity on us poor people who are in this sea of people and want desperately to see the whole show and how it was how it was designed originally still for all of that world of color is unquestionably one of the best disney shows i personally like phantasmic better well I guess that is second to the Knott's Incredible Waterworks show, which isn't around anymore. So there you are. Disneyland now has two of the greatest water shows of all time, Fantasmic and The World of Color. And perhaps one day I can do a full story on both of those shows and tell you all about how the area underneath the Fantasmic stage goes 40 feet underground and the big controversy about exactly where did all that water go when they drained the lake for the world of color. But for now, I hope you've enjoyed this look back at how Disneyland got its water shows. And I want to tell all of you that I've really loved bringing these types of stories to you. And I hope that over the last couple of years, you too have enjoyed hearing about just how all these things came to Disneyland. But for now, I want to wish you all the most magical day the next time you visit Disneyland. And as our pal Mickey says, I'll see you all again real soon. All right, thank you, Wayne. That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch our other Disneyland shows this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.